You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Welcome to Decidedly, where we are all about defeating bad decision-making. Today, our discussion with Ali Mirza, who is the founder and president of Rose Garden Consulting. He's closed over $200 million in sales as the host of the For the Close podcast, has been featured as a leading sales consultant and leadership consultant, all sorts of national publications. Uh, Great conversation about defeating bad decision-making. During our conversation, we had a chance to talk a little bit about Colby assessments. I'm a certified Colby uh, consultant. And what Colby does is it really gives you an understanding of how your your MO, how you approach solving issues, uh, looking at things like how your fact finder, how you deal with information, your follow through, how you deal with systems and processes, uh, quick start, how you deal with your relationship with risk and implement or how you deal with the tangible things around you. Uh, Sanger, do you remember what your Colby uh, assessment is? Eight fact finder, two follow through, six quick start, for implementer. Okay, so as an eight fact finder, you like to get a lot of you get a lot of details. That's why I can research. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you get a, lot, get a lot of details. Do you find that that slows you up on your decision making? No, not at all. Yeah, so I I am uh, I'm a seven on quick start, which means I, I tend to be on the high side on on making uh, fast decisions. I'm uncomfortable with, or a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty uh, than than most people. Uh, and Ali said something I, I've never heard. I've never met a 10 quick start. He said he, that's as high as you can get. That is uh, all gas and no brakes. So it was, uh, it was interesting to hear his take on decision making coming from that perspective. So uh, we had a great conversation. Enjoy our discussion with Ali Mirza on Decidedly. So Ali, tell, tell us about your business. So um, I run a sales consulting firm. So effectively what we do is we help companies build out their sales teams. So you've got good lead flow. Um, you've got three to five sales reps that are doing well, but you as the founder are still part of the day-to-day of the sales process. Or you have a sales leader that you're kind of like, uh, either they're not the right person or they don't have all the tools or they need support, something of that sort. Um what we'll do is we'll typically jump in there and the main problems we'll solve is you've got low close ratios. Um, so like you're the founder, you know, if I was on that call, we would close it, but my salespeople didn't. Um, or they did close the deal, but they didn't close it for as much as they should have closed it, right? They got 10 grand, I would have gotten 30. Um, or you just don't have the right team structure and culture in place. So those will be the problems that we solve. We come in there. We help you with the hiring. We help you hire the right people, create the right hiring process funnel, vetting people, how to onboard them. We'll actually build out all your scripts, playbooks, tools, everything. So you get um, continuity and consistency uh, amongst each individual rep. Um, And then we'll build out all of your kind of KPI structures, tech stack, uh, reporting and analytics and everything like that so that you can say, okay, everything is working properly. Now I can go from five to 50 reps. That's effectively what we do. Sure. So it, it sounds like there's a lot of decisions in that process. You know, someone who's a founder, maybe a very successful salesperson in their own right, they relinquish that responsibility 
to the team and, and to see them underperform. A lot of people are going to choose to continue to hold that close to the vest and not, not do it themselves. Building that out is really tough. So as a consultant who is helping people amplify their sales ability across an organization, how do you guys defeat bad decision-making that could hinder that? I think what, I mean, it, it, again, it depends on what that uh, the core decision-making that we're trying to defeat, right? Because I mean, if it's uh, ego-driven, that's one, uh, uh, one, one way to consider it. And then there is um, just, just poor decision-making as, as a lack of either clarity or information. So a lot of times, the first thing I always want to figure out is what do we know to be true? Right. Let's get facts, figures, emotions, all because because and why why did I specifically say facts? Let's get facts out of the way, is because um, you know there's your facts, my facts, and then the real facts, right? So it, it, everything is is a matter of perception. So we always look at what do we know to be true? What is something that everyone can agree upon? Once we have that, and we'll, and then from there we're looking to effectively define the problem. And once we have the problem that everyone can agree on, then what we find is a lot of times the, the, the appropriate decisions or the right path starts to unveil itself. Um, that's kind of like the first order way of going about it. And then um, the second order way is, um, it's, it's difficult to explain, but it, it happens a lot through just observation, right? As, as you're observing things play out, you can start to get a feeling and a gauge where those problems lie. When you when you go into an organization, there are uh, a, a lot of things you're having to deal with, right? You, you know, you're you're looking at hiring issues, you're looking at, at sales processes, uh, intake processes, sales close ratios. What are you finding is the biggest issue that you're addressing or needing to address most often? Uh, I would say nine times out of ten, it's accountability. Um, the gift of accountability is the greatest gift you can give somebody. And that is just seems to be something that um, people don't want to either express on, on their teams. Um, and it could be for a whole host of different reasons. But specifically what I mean about that is number one, expectations aren't clearly laid out, right? So most salespeople or just employees in general of an organization don't know what great looks like, right? So we hire somebody, we tell them, hey, this is your job, go do it. We give them a very superficial understanding of it, very high level. And we just hope that they you know, give themselves on the job training and then you know, do a great job. So we don't clearly communicate what it is that is expected of them. And I mean, at a granular level, right? So I expect you to do X, Y, and Z on an hour by hour, day to day, minute by minute basis. Um, and, and these are the KPIs I'm going to hold you accountable to. This is what great looks like. That's the first step. And then the second step is once you've laid it out, holding them accountable to that and having those difficult and crucial conversations when somebody inevitably, you know, doesn't live up to expectations or, or fails or, or drops the ball or whatever the case might be. It's about having a candid conversation and saying, Hey, this is the expectation. Why did you not meet it? Is it because you don't know how to? And if that's the case, then it's a training issue and let's get you trained up. Or is it that you don't want to, right? And if you don't want to, then that's a separate problem. Let's figure out why you don't want to. Do you think that you shouldn't be because it's you know, not actually going to help you hit your goals or it's, it's, it's a redundant effort? 
or um, you're just a poor culture fit and you're, there's no core values alignment, you don't actually want to work. Right. And if that's the case, then we, that, that's a different conversation, but we, we should you have to put those people on your team, right? Well, how many founders, uh, I, I'm not sure how many founders you guys talk to on a day-to-day basis, but I talk constantly and, and I'll ask them and I'll say, do you know that this person does not want to be inside of your organization? They are collecting a check. They are actively disengaged and they're collecting a check from you on a day-to-day basis. And then they'll make up some cockamamie excuse, be like, well, this person's going through this and this is happening. I'm like, I don't understand. Like, this person's not doing their job. Like, what yeah. more is there? Well, that would require me to admit that I made a bad hiring decision. Um, well, I think it was uh, I think correct, I, correct. But yeah, I, think I think a lot of people, a lot of people don't want to look back, even if the flaw is in someone else, a lot of people will be defensive because if, if they're underperforming, if my employee is underperforming, that means that I made a lot of bad decisions to get to this point. I made maybe a bad hiring decision. Maybe I didn't train them well. Maybe I didn't lead and motivate them well. At some point, I've done something wrong because otherwise they wouldn't be here. <laughs> so it's a lot easier to defend them than to say, oh, yeah, I messed up and I failed them. It's almost human nature saying, right? I think, you know, we, you're, you're right in that people end up hanging around longer in organizations because you want to justify that you made a good decision in hiring. You want to justify that. You, know, you can you can fix this. Uh, you want to make you want to justify that you were right in not firing them the first time they screwed up. Um, so it's it's tough. You know, I, I see that a lot. That organizations in in groups that I'm in and I talk with business owners all the time that they're de- they'll be dealing with this one personnel issue for way longer than they should. They keep bringing it up. I'm like, you know, at some point you've got to. You, you've got to make a decision how you're dealing with this with this issue. So I, I completely agree. I think I think the the challenge becomes is just extreme ownership and accountability you know within within yourself, right? So some people believe in an external locus of control and others believe in an internal locus of control, right? Some people believe things happen to them while other believes like I believe things happen for me. Um, and so what that means is if 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 I have someone that's a poor performer inside of my organization, the buck stops with me. Ultimately, yes, 100% it is, it is my responsibility. It, how have I allowed this person to continue to exist inside of my organization, right? Without getting them the proper training and resources or moving them along and freeing up their future. And, and yes, it is 100% dependent on me. And I think I, I read, it was like HBR that had put out a, a, a study that said 80% of all turnover is as a result of bad hiring, you know, and when you take, you know, poor culture into consideration, people leaving, you know, for greener pastures, people, um, you know, just not being trained and onboarded properly, even still 80% of all turnover goes right back to the hiring process. So if you don't have your hiring process locked in, you are putting yourself at a severe disadvantage. It almost, I think that's, I think that's so true. We, you know, we have a, I think now a, a fairly refined hiring process. And, but for years, we skated along in the, the misbelief that we, were, that we were good at hiring because we had gotten lucky. You know, we, we didn't have a good process. Uh, we weren't making good decision making, but we, we would hire somebody and they'd, they'd be a rock star. And we're like, hey, we're, we're good at this. <laughs> and we didn't realize, no, it just, the quality of our hiring process was horrible. We just happened to 
stumble across somebody who was really good. Yeah, that's a natural outcome of judging decision making based on the results of that decision. Right. <laughs> You know, right. like people who gamble in Vegas and win a lot of money. Oh, man, I'm a rock star. I'm just really good at blackjack. I, I know how to do. No, man, you shouldn't have mortgaged the house to go to Vegas. Yeah, that, was, that was a horrible decision. That was dumb that as hell. You just happened to win. Yeah, bad decision making just happened to work out. We had a uh, we had an issue years ago. Uh, there was a sales guy on our team and he was wanting to develop in uh, kind of move along in his career. And over a, a three month period, I had given him some things to do uh, sort of to advance the goal that he said he was trying to, to uh, achieve. And one was, I, I think, read a, a brochure. <laughs> Two was pick a date on uh, when he wanted to take some exam, not, not sign up, not study for it, not pay any money, just pick the date he wanted to take the exam and something else was, you know, equally insignificant. Just, you know, read. I, I think, you know, some other uh, website. And uh, so he came back after. These were like lay, lay up, super easy things. And uh, he came back, and I said, "So how did you do on these these things that are going to get you what you said you wanted?" And he goes, "Well, I didn't. I didn't do them." And I said, "Oh, tell, tell me more about that." <laughs> and he said, uh, "Well, I didn't want to set a precedent." for doing work that I wasn't getting paid for. <laughs> I said, I said, we are, we are really going to miss you. I'd have blown, I'd have blown my, I probably would have had aneurysm in that moment. I'd have lost my mind. <laughs> I just like, this is clearly, you could not have held up a bigger sign to me that there was a disconnected culture than what you just said. <laughs> so yeah, we, we, Parted ways, but uh, yeah. So when when you look at the decisions you have to make in in the organizations that you're coaching, right? In, in, in sort of the leadership work that you do, the uh, the sales work that you do, what, what's the biggest decision you have to make as you're interacting with people that are bringing you on to do the type of work you're doing? The biggest decision that I have to make is whether or not I can accept the client. Right. A lot of what we do is it, it either works really well or it doesn't work at all. I'm just going to be very candid. Yeah. There's not a single person that's going to tell you like, hey, either we hit home runs or, or, or we strike out. Right. Everyone's going to tell you we're going to go for the home run. We'll probably end up with a base hit. Um, that's not how our business uh, works. Our business very much works in that it either works or it doesn't uh, because we come in and we do a lot of their Unfortunately, a lot of times it is wholesale systematic changes. And I have to be very careful in validating many different factors before we take on a client because I don't want to change a whole bunch of things and then only afterwards, you know, figure out, you know, in, in a postmortem, be like, ooh, we didn't take this into consideration. Yeah. Uh, and this, this, this strategy won't work, right? So, so that's probably the biggest decision we have to make. And so there's a whole host of, you know, um, validation criteria that that we will go through before we ever um accept the deal and, and onboard a client what is okay what are, what are those so what would you look for in in that decision making process that helps you determine if they're an ideal fit for you well so first and foremost they have to be an ideal uh ideal client right and so an ideal client is somebody that already has really good lead flow is somebody that already has um a, you know a sales team they're looking to scale it's an inside sales team that's b2b sales but they're look they're in a hyper commoditized space 
and they need to create differentiation. So there's a whole host of things that we have to go through first to determine whether this is an ideal client or not. That's just the client. Then we have to look at the situation. And then the situation specifically is, are we gonna have the control we require? Um, I, don't, I'm, I don't believe in democracies. I do not believe in, in decision-making through committee, right? It is my way and we're going to do it, period. Right. You, yeah, I read something the other day that the the average family when Blockbuster was still around, you, you talk about decision making by committee. Uh, the average family when they went into a Blockbuster took forty five minutes to make a decision on a movie. <laughs> it's a decision by committee, right? Just it's, it doesn't work. It does not work. You, you will. It, so so I believe I've, I've got shirts that say this. It says indecisiveness is weakness. Right. We make decisive, we take decisive action, right? And because we, we've got a lot of domain experience that allows us to believe and have the confidence because we'll be well provisioned when we arrive at a, at a, at a, at a mm -hmm. point. But so, so we like to make decisive decisions very quickly because if you, if you don't shoot that gap, a lot of times you only have a very small window in order to be able to capitalize on an opportunity. We refuse to lose those. So that's got to be the first thing is we've got to make sure that. Yeah, but I, it's, it's so difficult to, to get to that point. Right. You know, the T-shirt you're talking about, indecisiveness is, is weakness. But the, the people who are, are not quick decision makers really don't see it that way. You know, they, they say, well, indecisiveness is I'm getting the facts. I'm, I'm making a better decision. I'm, I'm thinking it through. I'm being patient. I'm, I'm bringing collaboration. I'm not rushing to judgment. I want to make sure it's OK right. with everyone. You want right. To do you want me to bust that wide open? I would love well, that. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a quick decision maker. Now that's that doesn't mean I'm a good decision maker, but I <laughs> that doesn't mean I always make the right decision. But I tend to make fast decisions, and so, okay. I want to get better at decision making, which is why we do this podcast, right? Is to explore how we do that. But yeah, I'd love to hear you bust that because I hear okay. it all. Okay, so there's like three different factors there. Um, first and foremost, in terms of how people make decisions, are you guys familiar with uh, the, um, the, the Colby, Colby assessment? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm Colby right. certified. Okay. Oh, yeah. as are we. We're Colby certified. Okay, perfect. So I'm uh, preaching to the choir here, right? You got your fact finders. And then I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 10 quick start, right? You're so, 10? <laughs> I'm a 10 quick start. I'm a two fact finder and I'm a 10 quick start. So I just go, right? I'll, I'll live. Uh, All gas, no break. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. So, um, so that being said, I have worked with high fact finders and low quick starts that also make quick decisions. Colby is not an excuse to move slowly. You just require more. So what you need to do is you need to understand that the decision-making timeline is the decision-making timeline. And what you need to do, whereas I only need, let's just say two nuggets of information, if I'm a two fact finder, I can have my fulfill my two pieces of information inside of this timeline. Now, if somebody's a nine fact finder and they require a lot more information before they're comfortable in making a decision, make decision, well, you have the same amount of time, just go get more information, right? So what a lot of people do in their, when they take time, they're not gathering more information. What they're doing is they're delaying having mm -hmm. to make a decision. So you have to understand there's a difference between I'm gathering information versus I am delaying, uh, delaying making a decision. When someone says I'm getting all the facts, okay, what facts do you need? When will you have them by? And if they truly are looking to get all the facts, they will, they'll be able to answer that question. But if they're looking to slow roll it and delay the decision, 
it, it, they won't be able to answer they, that. They can't answer that question because there's always another fact around the corner. So that's number one. The second thing that, uh, so that, that's how people make decisions. Okay, well, I want to make the right decision. Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you there is no such thing. <laughs> there is no such thing as the right decision. First of all, every decision you make, whether or not it is the right or the wrong decision, you will post-rationalize it anyways. It is just it is just the way our brains work, okay? Then the second thing about that is that everything is a matter of circumstance and how it, it plays out. Remember, you can have all of the right information, you can have everything perfect, and then something else messes up and, and your decision-making you know, goes completely out the window. Everything, and you guys talked about you know, judging a decision based off of the outcome, right? That, that's Annie Duke's uh, resultist uh, mentality, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's all it is. You don't know what the right, you don't know how it will turn out. And in, if it turns out favorably, you will say it was your decision-making and the information that you gathered. And if it didn't turn out favorably, it's because we moved too quickly. Well, I mean, I could also flip that on its head and say that it worked out because we moved quickly. The, the, the reality is the decision is whatever decision you're going to make, right? And, and at the end of the day, it will turn out however it will turn out. There are so many factors that are not inside of your control. And just slow rolling something doesn't make it yeah. Period. Using the group to make decisions, I think, gives people the opportunity to take credit for the ones that turn out well and and avoid taking the blame for the ones that didn't work out. If it didn't work out, it was our decision. Yeah. Uh, if it did work out, it was my decision. I spearheaded it. Yeah. Remember when I recommended me. that? Yeah. <laughs> that revisionist history. Remember, I said we should do that way back when. <laughs> No. No. I see that. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with all that. I was I was talking with uh, somebody the other day. They mentioned this uh, book they'd read about, uh, written by uh, Michael Pollan, and it was three simple rules for eating. And and in the book, it said uh, he had broken this. There's a lot of nutrition books out there, and he had broken it into three simple things. One is eat food. You know, which I'm interpreting as like real food, uh, not too much and mostly plants. And so I don't, I don't want to catch you flat footed on this, but I, I thought there probably are three rules for every industry. There's probably three rules for plumbers. There's probably three rules, you know, for airline pilots, there's probably three rules for teachers. And if, if he came up with these really three simple rules, which I thought were really good on nutrition, what would you say as a leadership professional, what would you say, what are the three rules that companies ought to follow to get really good at the stuff that you coach them on? I think that um, I don't have an answer to that, but being a 10 quick star, I'll just make one up on the spot. Do it. It's a little unfair because I caught you flat-footed on it, but I, I just- You're good. You're good. I think the, the first rule would be, you know, what do we do well? Let's do more of that. And the second rule is what do we do poorly? Let's stop doing that, uh, change it, augment it. Uh, and then the third rule would be what are we not doing that we need to be doing, right? And I think that third rule is probably most telling because you don't, it, there's what you know, there's what you don't know, you know what you don't know. And then the third part is you don't know what you don't know and how you fill in. So the stuff that you know you, is the, the first two rules, you know, do more of what you are doing well and then uh, and less of what you aren't doing well. But then there's, what I know I don't know, I, what I don't know, that's, okay, how do I acquire more information? How do I fix that? 
go down that road. That next component, which is you don't know what you don't know, that's about exposure and trying to minimize that as much as possible and making sure that you are around the right people. I, the most telling thing to me when I walk into an organization based on whether or not they are or aren't successful or will and will not be successful is what are they talking about? When they're talking about their wins and the things they do well, I know that's a poorly run organization. When they're talking about the things that they're doing not well and things that need improvement, I know that's a well-run organization. And I'll give you, uh, so that's a, right up there is a Kobe Bryant signed basketball, huge Kobe fan. So I'll tell you this, if you ever talk to Kobe Bryant, he will never tell you about anything he's good at. He, and he's out of 100% of stuff that he does, 99% of the things he's amazing at, better than everybody else at. But he will only ever focus on that 1% of stuff that he's not good at, things that he was constantly trying to improve. So when I'm speaking to an organization, they're telling me about, Ali, we can't get this right. This is not working. We need to do this. We need to do this. I know you're only focused on that because you're trying to get better. And that's just the way in which you run. Versus if you're like, well, our close ratios are this. Our clients love us. This and this and this. And I'm like, you're just hiding all the truth. You know, or you're oblivious to it, which is even worse. Yeah, we, uh, we, we actually allocated specific time in our weekly leadership meeting uh, to sort of dissect decisions and, and look at what are the things that we could have done differently, could have, could have done better. Anytime there's a dropped ball, anytime we have somebody leave the organization, which doesn't happen very often, but when it does, you know, we, we stop and explore, um, even, if, even if they left on good terms, let's explore how could we have done this better. Uh, I remember as a, uh, as a young manager, uh, somebody had told me, and I thought it was good advice, uh, one of our sales guys had come, come back from talking with some a prospect and they were just complaining, you know, idiots, these people are stupid and these people didn't know what they were doing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this guy turned to him and said, you know, as long as you're saying those types of things, you're never going to grow. You're never going to explore. As long as you think it was the, the prospect that was the problem, you're never going to get better. And, uh, you know, I think that's really good advice is, you know, look inward, look at what are you doing, explore it. And that just goes to the organization. And sometimes those are tough. Those are tough discussions to have. They're uncomfortable because they re reveal, you know, vulnerabilities. They reveal faults we don't want to talk about. They, they uh, shine a light on decisions we made that, you know, maybe we're not proud of. But you've, you've got to do it. And uh, it's uncomfortable, but you've got to do it. Ali, you talked about the, the known knowns and the unknown unknowns, the things that you, you don't know you don't. You, you know you don't know, right? Um, I, how familiar are you with, with Donald Rumsfeld and, and the, the talk that he gave about the unknown knowns? Uh, vaguely. I, okay. I know of the talk and I've heard bits and pieces of it. Yeah, so he, he basically, he got so much flack for this whenever he brought up the idea. But he says, you know, there's the known knowns, the things you know you know, the things you know you do not know, and then the things you do not know that you do not know. Um, but there's a fourth category, and those are the things that you don't know that you do know. You're unaware of, but you know deep down to be true, right? Inherently to be true. And I think that that, to take it back to the Colby, I think that's the beautiful role that the low quick starts play 
because when we who are all three of us high quick starts, we, we can adapt to change really quickly. We embrace change. We like change. We have no problem. We make quick decision making. You know, if we look at the disc assessments for all three of us, I bet we're 90 plus on, on the D score, you know, very quick decision making, very decisive. Um, a lot of times I'll, we'll, I'll see organizations or, or clients or, or even individuals move quickly into change and leave behind something that was working for a very good and valid reason. In other words, they knew they needed to be doing this thing, <laughs> but they forgot that they knew that. Uh, I think we see it in our society all the time, right? I think we see it in, in our individual lives. We, we don't know that groups make inefficient, or some people don't know that groups make inefficient decisions. But you know that when you really think about it, you know that because it hasn't been working for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think that there is this. Um, so, so I just want to, you know, clarify a point. I don't believe that all change is great, of course, right? But I also don't believe that um, my, um, quick starts are the only ones that can make change, right? I, I actually. Sure a low quick start uh, you know i've got people on my team that are you know two i've got someone that's a three quick start on my team and the 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 thing that is inherently different between about me versus her is that she'll think through things more um whereas i'm uh she, she wants to maintain right whereas i don't and i want to change um that's okay I actually, I think that that's healthy conflict because then that forces me to have to justify why I'm changing. The, what I find unacceptable is somebody that wants to not change in the, in the light or in the face of when the change is appropriate. But that being said, I do agree with you, right? Not all change is good. And um, you, know, you have to know what is working and why it's working uh, and not change just for the sake of change. But I do agree with that. Sure. Last question, I'll leave you with this as a, as a sales coach. What advice would you have for people who, who want to make better decisions uh, in their, or maybe let me reframe that as a, to say, to other salespeople, what advice would you give them or last words of wisdom uh, to improve their game? I think that the, the more questions you can ask, the better. Um, and then this is just flat out anywhere, whether this is on a, uh, on a, you know, sales call or, or anything, you'll be shocked how many times, right? I and mean, people pay me to come into their organization and assess the challenges that they're having, right? And so all I'm doing all day long is asking questions. And you'd be shocked how many times, because it's, it's like the old lawyer's rule, right? Never ask a question you don't, you don't know the answer to. It's a, a prosecutor rule. So I'm asking questions because I'm like, mm, there's a problem here. Mm, there's where there's smoke, there's fire. I don't know what the problem is, but I'm going to root it out. And then I'll get people just answering and talking and talking. And I'm, you'll be shocked. The most growth-minded people follow one pattern and the most fixed-minded people follow another pattern. And the pattern's very simple. I'll ask a question. Uh, fixed-minded people will have an answer. Then usually that answer is kind of a half-assed or a shitty answer. So then I'll ask a follow-up question. Then they'll have an answer. Question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. That's how the fixed mindset conversation goes. Versus with the growth mindset individual, I'll ask a question, they'll think, they'll answer to the best of their ability. They'll say, well, I don't know this to be true, but here's what I think, or here, they'll answer the question. They won't be evasive. 
but then they'll say, but what do you think? Why are you asking that question? They're naturally inquisitive. They are naturally trying to figure out, well, he's asking this question for a reason. I don't know that I have the right answer. I may have the answer, even if they're confident in their answer. And they're like, I know this is the right way. They'll always look for that feedback. And because that's what, that's what makes them growth-minded is because they're not afraid of feedback. A fixed mindset person is afraid of feedback because then that might force upon them to change. And they don't want that, right? They, they want to avoid that discomfort. So the, the best advice I can give to somebody, anybody that wants to grow in anything is you know, um, have strong opinions loosely held, right? Know what it is that you're talking about, but always be open to change. And when you answer a question, always follow that up with, you know, some sort of clarifying uh, follow-up question with, with it, you know, being, you know, do you agree? Do you disagree? Give me some feedback. Always welcome that feedback. Perfect. Ali, thank you so much for being with us today. I, I learned a lot. I appreciate your insight. Where can people find you? Uh, our website is rosegardenconsulting.com. Rose like the flower. Perfect. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Thanks a lot. My biggest takeaway from our conversation with Ali today was when encouraging a group or encouraging other people to make the right decision. Uh, as a leader, we don't always have the opportunity to make the decision for other people, but we want to guide them towards making a decision. And so some people aren't quick at the in the decision-making process. So we've got to set boundaries for that, that don't allow them to procrastinate the decision or delay the decision. So giving people a deadline saying, this is when we, when do you think you'll be able to make a decision by and what do you need in order to make that decision? So they can set a deadline for that decision and set the stage um, or the expectations for, for what they will need before they're able to make a decision. That's good. Yeah, that's good. So I, I, my takeaway was really when we were talking about setting up the three things, having clear expectations for people uh, that you're leading, uh, having accountability. Uh, you know, if they're not doing something, how, you know, how are they doing it? Um, you know, do they need additional training? Do they not want to do it? So what, what is the understanding there? So clear expectations, accountability, and then alignment. And the alignment really came in the early part of the relationship with someone, whether that was a new hire, whether that was a client, uh, and so a lot of decisions, I think, get passed over and, and are made poorly because people are just bringing on, uh, whether it's a client or a, a new hire, without a lot of uh, framework in their decision making. So I thought that was I thought that was good. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.